Thank you for joining us today at Revolution 22. We are a church in downtown Boise, Idaho. As we learn from God's word in the book of John, we pray that his word would be received and would bear fruit in your life. Out of John chapter 4, verses 40 through 54 today. After two days, he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. The fact that it is living and active and true. No error in it, God, that you have brought it to bring truth to our hearts, to bring um, a surrender to your ways. God, I pray that I get out of the way of whatever you want to accomplish in the hearts of your children today. And if there's someone that's here that's not your child, God, I pray that you would adopt them, bring them in, bring them home. And whatever is done today, God, we pray that you'd be glorified in all of it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can grab a seat. Um, have you ever heard that, the, I'm sure you have, that cats have nine lives? Is everyone, anyone not aware of that? Okay, so I actually experienced this with a cat. My neighbor growing up, she loved animals better than people. And she had, like, dogs. She'd have dogs live to, like, 24 years old. That they, Like, you're having to help them get up to go to the bathroom. Like, they lived way too long. Well, she found this cat shaved and bloodied and all kinds of things and, like, adopted it. And her, her, the cat's name became Kirby. Well, Kirby lived, and we grew up in the foothills. And the foothills here, any outdoor cat was usually breakfast, lunch, or dinner for a fox at some point or another. I do know what a fox says, if you want to ask that afterwards, too. But they, they would eat, they would eat the, the stray cats, but not Kirby. And every dog would chase cats, but not Kirby. This cat was different. Myself, my family, and then my neighbor that had this cat, we had seen this cat multiple times, been run over by both tires twice, um, like in a bunch of other situations, made it all the way to the banks underneath a car, like Banks, Idaho, underneath a car, scraped up. This cat had seen all kinds of things. And I remember I was telling Jen this story. When we were first dating, I was like telling her about this story because we got on this subject of cats. I don't like cats, but that's okay. And we were telling about that, talking about this story of cats. And I told her this story, and she was nice, and we were young and dating in love. And, you know, and so she didn't really like correct me, but I didn't know this until later when we were sitting at my parents' house outdoors with my neighbor, and we're starting to talk. And somehow we got on the subject of Kirby, and then the story's kind of coming out of Kirby. And Jen, in this like moment, like, wait, 
this is true? Like this, and I was like, wait, you didn't believe me beforehand? Like, like this was that moment where we had that like, oh, wait, she didn't believe me. But she had not believed that it was true. All the stories, she's like, there's no way it was true. And then all of a sudden, when everyone started corroborating the story, she's like, oh my goodness, I had no, I thought that was just in, embellished or exaggerated. And it's like, no, this is what really happened. What's funny is that when it comes to trying to understand something that doesn't make logical sense to us, we usually want like one of three things to understand it, right? We want, the, we want to see it with our eyes to know it. We want to hear it from someone we trust or we just trust someone beyond it and we just believe it, right? Those, those are kind of there. But most of the time, we want the first two. We want to know that we saw it with our own eyes. And today, it's like CG, computer graphics. Like, I don't even know if seeing it with your own eyes matters anymore, right? But, like, but we want to see it. And if we see it, then we'll believe it. But then we might believe it if someone we really trust tells us about it. But the problem is, is that most of us, that's really not true. Like we, we won't always believe it even if we see it. And we will forget that we believed it at one point when we see it. And, and how does this then equate or translate into the scriptures, the truth about God? See, we are told over and over and over again in the scriptures who God is. Some of you don't know who God is because you just don't read the scriptures. That's a problem. But many of us read the scriptures and still doubt God is who he says he is in the scriptures because we're like, I just need to see it with my own eyes. Seeing is something that everyone wants. But what about believing in Jesus? What do you need to see for you to surrender your life to believe to Jesus? How, how far does Jesus have to go in your life before you finally say, okay, that's enough miracles and I will believe this now? What do we need to believe him? Have you ever thought or prayed that if God would just do this one thing, you would fill in the blank? God, if you would just do this, please. It could be a genuinely good thing. But you have this idea like, God, if you do this, I, I, would, I won't do this anymore or I will do this. We make God some kind of genie to barter with or to, to negotiate with. See, when you see signs in Scripture, and really signs anywhere, signs are meant to kind of point you to something further on. The sign is never a mountain. It's not like we stop and marvel at the sign that says cliffs ahead. We stop at the cliffs to look over the cliff. The signs are always there. To, they have a purpose. They point you to something beyond themselves. It's a tangible reality. And in Scripture, we see that signs serve a very big purpose. The Gospel of John only hits seven kind of miracles, signs and wonders that he does. There's many other ones. It says at the end of John, he said, had I written all that was there, there's not enough books to contain that which was seen. But signs serve a purpose. For John, a sign is a divine revelation that leads to an enlightened faith in God. That's what it is. The sign describes a revelatory unveiling of God that may be worked through a miracle. And so when you see signs all over in Scripture, they're meant to, to point us to something beyond the sign itself. But so often we get wrapped up in the miraculous thing. If you've ever been around someone or experienced something that is completely unexplainable by logic and you know that God was in it, sometimes too often we can get very enamored and excited about what we saw and not the God who did it. Jews believed that signs and wonders were an affirmation of authenticity to prophets. This is why you see so many Jews coming to Jesus saying, we know that you're a prophet. Because only prophets could do the miracles or the signs or the healings or the things that he was doing. Only a prophet could do that. But they went beyond that, and so far they believed that signs needed to be happening on a regular basis. Even Jesus in Matthew 12 says an evil and adulterous nation, a generation, seeks for a sign. So is, is Jesus against doing signs and miracles because it seems like his life was on? No, we see all over Scripture. Moses asked for signs. God gave him many signs to show that he had power. 
Gideon pleaded for God to sign, did it. Jonathan asked before he went on to the army, give me a sign. David sees signs. We see God showing signs and miracles all over the place. So it's not that he's against them. It's that the signs were always meant to display and show something beyond themselves. They were never about the sign themselves. It has to be more than signs. You know, many of us, I think, have thought these things. If God would have done these things in front of me, wouldn't I, how would you ever have doubted? Case in point, the Israelites. They literally walked across dry ground, seeing walls of water on either side of them. They had a pillar of clouds and smoke and flames. Like you would think of all the people, they woke up every morning like, I guess I'll fry this manna. I guess I'll fry this manna. Like they saw miracle and miracle and sign after sign, yet they still struggled to believe. So it has to be more than the sign itself. And so every sign, John is not, not hiding. He's not, he's not being timid in what his purpose is in this book. We see that at the end in chapter 20. He's, he's literally, his purpose, inspired by God, is to show you that Jesus is the Son of God and that the only way to salvation, those who believe in him, will have eternal life. This is what it means to follow them. So when we see signs, we got to look at them not as, hey, this sign has something to teach me on how I'm supposed to do a healing or how this is supposed to be in place, although that may be there. But most of the time, it's not that. You know, if you stop and think about it, in this story right here, what if all that this story had to do with was the salvation of this official and this family? Like this was written for him and his family at this time, this, this interaction with Jesus in this time. What if that's the purpose of this? We see in, in verse 43, he transitions. John gives us these, these weird transition things after two days. So he was in, in Samaria with, the, with the, the Samaritans and just teaching, I'm assuming teaching, because many Samaritans come to believe in faith after the woman at the well. And so after two days, then he moves on. So he's always giving you kind of these markers to tell you that the story's happening, but these markers aren't meant to understand every aspect of the story. He's just trying to like, okay, hey, moving on, here's we are. So then from Samaria, he moves out of this area, heads to heads to Galilee, and all of a sudden, the words travel that he's there. He's there, and that's where people come. There's one question in the section because he says that a prophet is not welcome in his own town. This is what Jesus says. He says, I testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. And then he comes to Galilee, and the Galileans welcome him. Well, Jesus was from Galilee. He was in Nazareth in the, in the area of Galilee. Most scholars believe that what he's talking about here isn't necessarily the Galileans or Nazareth like it's been used in the synoptics gospels the other gospels but what he's talking about is that the jews in themselves are not going to receive him in this way the samaritans were they didn't get a sign they got a woman that said that he told her everything she knew about everything about herself and everyone in the town's like we all knew that but something in that interaction the way that she experienced the grace of jesus many samaritans came and followed him so now coming to galilee which was predominantly jewish had some gentiles some other people kind of a mixture this is an area where he's saying look we're not going to be welcome people are going to we're going to question us and that's proven just a little bit further when he says, look, all you guys want is, is signs. The reason why they're excited about it is because of what they saw in Jerusalem. This is why everyone's excited about it. He spent some time in Jerusalem. We don't know any of the miracles that happened, but there were apparently other things besides the turning over tables and the water into wine that happened in Cana. That, but there were other things that happened the Passover that was causing attention and made its way all the way around Judea and the Samaria and all the areas around that. And so people knew now, like, something's happening. This man's doing something different. They, maybe it was the story of John the Baptist and what he was declaring. Maybe it was the, the baptism that they were seeing. We don't know what's being declared, but that there were many other things that happened. The reason why this is the second sign, it's the second sign that happens in Galilee. It's these two areas. This is kind of the bookend, the front and the end here in Galilee. So what's happening here is this official hears this. Now, when we see the word official, 
We have to understand that in the Greek, it really means kind of royal official or nobleman. Most likely this title was used as someone that was tied to a king. It's not going to be someone that like is just a, a little official. It's, they're tied to a king. And because of where he was, he was probably tied to Herod Antipas, which wasn't, he wasn't entirely a king, but people revered him as a king and thought of him as a king in that way at that moment. But he ran this area. We see that he is very kind of popular in this way. Mark 6 through 14 tells us that. But there's no evidence also about this official, this Herodian official, that whether he is a Gentile or a Jew. We don't know. And no one, there's no way for us to understand which one he is. But here's the situation. A man of royalty. If he's of royalty, then he probably has a horse. So he makes the 12 to 17 mile jog from Capernaum up to Galilee. And so he's, he's there because he's heard that Jesus is there. This is, this is all it is. Now, his son, we know he has a fever, and he's to the point of death, so he's very, very sick. Now, this can tend to escape us, so I just want to stop for a moment and focus on this. Any of you parents in here that have ever experienced a scare with your child can only imagine what you'd feel with a child being to the point of death. And so I think we have to stop and recognize that this, this man, what he's coming for, is an okay thing to ask. His son is to the point of death. If you've ever experienced that, it's incredibly difficult and painful and hard. So this man, this man is, is coming to plea on behalf of his son. He's not coming to Jesus as the Messiah, as the son of God. He's coming and he's heard that he's going to do some miracles and maybe this man, maybe this Jesus man can save my son. Now in this day and age, Sons played a, a very specific role. And the way that the, the word that he uses for his son here is one of, it's like an endearment term to describe a little boy. Most likely, his, it could be his firstborn. And a lot of the, the rights and the, the work and everything would kind of follow through the firstborn son. And so there was a lot of weight on the son. So he was very valuable and important to this dad. It's not that he was maybe favored in the more the kids, but the way that he uses this, his father's desperate. This, this word is, it's a pleading. It's a continuous pleading, a begging. The picture you get is that this man runs up, like jumps off his horse, falls before Jesus, a carpenter from Nazareth's feet, and starts begging for him to save his son. A nobleman, a man official, that when he came in, everyone knew he was an official, just by the way he dressed. And he comes running in, exhausted, and says, please, please, please come save my son. This is not some, hey, can you do some cool little fireworks show so I can believe in you? This is a plea beyond all pleas. He's pleading for something massive in this situation. And Jesus' response almost at first seems crazy. So Jesus says to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Okay, now that sounds really insensitive, but there's something that we have to understand. I have a couple neighbors that are from the South, so they're bilingual. Um, one from Georgia, one from Texas, and they use this all the time. This word y'all, I don't know if you ever heard that, y'all. That's how this is said in the Greek. When he's saying you, he's not saying, he's not looking at the, the, the official on the ground, hey, stand up, unless you see a sign. No, he's saying it to everyone there. Because I can tell you right now what's happening. This man's saying to a man that has been displaying all kinds of power, hey, heal my son, he might die. Right? I can guarantee some of the people like, oh, man, get ready, we're going to go to Capernaum, we're going to see this, and they're starting to pack their stuff, like, this is going to be awesome. They were ready to see a sign. And Jesus says, unless you guys see signs, you won't believe. You won't believe. And this man, this man goes on and says, Sir, 
sir, Lord, come down before he dies. He doesn't even pay attention to the crowd. He doesn't even pay attention to the rebuke. He's not even really questioning the belief thing. All he's pleading on, all he's focused on, which no one would fault him for, he's focused on the fact that his son is about to die. And he says, come, please. And then something incredible happens. I, I wish there was more conversation. I wish there was more like understanding in this, but the gospels leave that out for us to just enjoy, which is great. But he says, okay. And then Jesus says, go, your son will live. Now, put yourself in his shoes. Like you're sitting on the floor on the dirt, like dirt all over you. It's probably turning into like gross snot, mud stains. Like you've seen your kids run through dirt and like the, the tears are turning to like dark brown on their face. Like this guy's a, just a hot mess, right? And I feel like at that moment I'd stand up and be like, like, like it's done, like done, done, like we're, we're good. Like I feel like I'd question this a little bit, right? Because like I'm not seeing anything. And if you're the crowd, you're going, oh man, all right, put the stuff back, take the sleeping bag. We're staying in town. It looks like Jesus isn't going, right? Like, but he... He does what? The, the, the man does this, which is amazing. He says, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke. And he went on his way. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke, and he went on his way. Now, that's just crazy. Here's what's even harder. If you do the timing, going down to Capernaum from there, most likely this official had a horse. Okay? Most likely. He maybe didn't. But either way, the trek down is not that long. We know that this happened at the seventh hour. So if, if it happened at the seventh hour on the Roman clock, then that would be like 7 p.m. If it happened at the seventh hour on the Jewish clock, then that's 1 p.m. But either way, so if it's 7 p.m., it maybe makes sense that he sleeps that night and then goes. But somehow on his trek home, the servants meet him out the next day. So is it, is it, is it worth saying like that maybe the guy's like, oh, okay, gets up, they're like, well, that was embarrassing. Sorry, I look so crazy here. Uh, thank you. And just goes back to his business, believing fully that his son is healed. I, I, don't, I don't know how you do that as a father, but maybe that's what happened. But ultimately, he believes. Now, what we have to understand is this is not the centurion that you hear in the Gospels, the other synoptic Gospels. This is a totally different royal official. This is a totally different, different story, different, different healing all the way around. But this man leaves. He believes and then he goes home, and on his way, the servants come running out to him saying, your son is recovering. Could you imagine how wonderful that news would have been? I mean, you got to assume that he believed, but he was like, okay, I'm, I'm believing, but I didn't see it. I don't know what's going on. And then he gets and hears from his servants, and then I, even if he had heard it from them, it's like his heart's getting excited, and then he runs and he gets to hug his boy who's healed. And you know what's interesting is right after he does that, it says that he, <laughs> says that he believed and his entire family believed. It's really important for us to understand this. Now, fathers, pay attention. Look at me. Look at me. Okay? There is something profound about a father who follows the Lord and leads his family well. I am not negating or minimizing a mother doing the same. It is very beautiful and profound and needed as well. But dads, don't go through the motions. It is unbelievable what you see in Scripture when a father follows and what happens. We see this with, with the Roman guard. We see this, we see this with many different people. Don't forget what God can do with one in your family. And if you're here today, if you're a father or a mother and your spouse isn't believing, don't, don't minimize what God can do through one person that loves you. It's profound. So the whole family comes to believe. The whole family. 
comes to believe. Now, what's interesting about this is that he doesn't see the miracle except for when he hugs his son. And like many of us, we could say, well, maybe his fever got better and, you know, there's some medicine. We can kind of explain it away to why it makes sense that that happened. But if you go back, the word belief, and Jesus says, you won't believe unless you see it. And then he says, the man believed and left. And then he says, the family believed. It's the same word all the way across the board. So the belief that this man shows when he steps away from Jesus at his word is the same belief that it shows when he sees his son healed. So he didn't need the sign to believe it. The sign just pointed him further to it. One scholar says it this way. He says, The distinction between believing because we've seen something and believing on the strength of Jesus' word remains important throughout the whole gospel. It reaches its final dramatic statement in Jesus' gentle rebuke to Thomas in John 20, 29, where he says, Have you believed because you've seen? Blessed are those who haven't seen and yet believe. Romans 10, 17 says it this way. So faith comes from hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. Our faith is, 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 is coming from hearing these things. And many of us today, and you're like, I'm, well, I don't understand how this makes sense here. Like, we can't lose sight of John's agenda. Again, inspired by the, the Holy Spirit, we can't lose sight of his agenda. His, his point in everything he's sharing is to show that God, that Jesus has all power and authority. He is the Son of God, and that salvation and life, eternal life, comes through him and him only. And he did that right here for this official and his family. He showed him that. He displayed it. This is a story that we have to remember has a purpose. And maybe the purpose was just for the nobleman. <laughs> Did you ever think, like, we just get to peer into God doing his amazing work in someone else's life. And this family was changed forever because of this experience. Because he believed. We have to recognize that God is still a God of miracles. And I understand many of us today were saying, well, it's not that I, that I don't believe, it's that I, I want God to do these things, but we start wrestling. Have you ever had a crisis of faith? I'm, if you haven't, you will. And usually the crisis of faith plays out in one way or another, but, but, but the, the basic kind of understanding of it is, is that you're struggling to believe that God is who he says he is because of what's going on in your, in your life right now. And so you'll say things like, God, if you're good, do this. God, if you can or your will do this, you may not even ask it very politely and kind or, or submit it, but ultimately your faith crisis, what it's doing is it's showing you a couple things. One is that whatever you're going through, if you are his, is serving a purpose. And the other is that you're not God, he is. And so when we say, I will believe when you do these things, or maybe we say, I don't believe because God hasn't done all those things. It's just the same thing they're saying back then. They just want to see him do a, they want him to be a little circus act and show some kind of fancy thing and be like, cool, I'll believe in that. Jesus, every time we see signs and miracles in scripture, there's always an eternal implication far beyond the temporary. Think about it. This boy, he lived who knows how long, but then he died. Maybe he outlived his father. Maybe he didn't. The need was met was temporary. The need that Jesus was after was the eternal one. And he goes, oh, I'll heal here, but, but I'm going to do something far greater than you want. This father believed there was nothing greater that he needed, and Jesus said, you're wrong. Let me show you what you need by meeting this need. He took him further. We need to remember that God will move 
in miraculous ways. And some of you right now, you're praying for miraculous healing in relationships, in marriages, in finances, in physical ailments. You're praying for miraculous things for God to do. Just be sure that you're not praying that I'll believe you if you do. That's the difference. There are usually at least three things that will happen in miraculous things that I've seen in my limited life experience. The first one, the first and primary, and we can see it in Scripture all the way across the board, God will be glorified in any miraculous thing. It is about his glory. There are people sitting in this room that I know have experienced miraculous things outside of their salvation, which is the best miracle. But it's never about the individual that, that prayed it. It's never about the individual that experienced it. It's always about the God who enables it. It's, it's to bring him glory. We can't get sidetracked by that. The second thing is you have to recognize that Jesus is always, God is always drawing us to himself. Either in salvation, he is drawing us to him, or as a saved, as a child, he is drawing us to him. So in every miraculous sign or experience you do, he's not only, he's not only bringing glory to himself, but he's drawing you in relationally. He's wanting you to experience him not just in your knowledge, not just in belief, because we know belief is not enough. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. It must move on into faith. He went to Jesus what he believed was his biggest need, and Jesus met an even larger one. Jesus always did signs tied to teaching. The signs met the temporary, the teaching brought them to the eternal. He always did that. Luke 10 says this. It's interesting because I think so often we can find ourselves becoming enamored with the power of God, and I've seen this in the church you either kind of run to two ways, and I, I believe that majority of us maybe struggle with the, the side that we forget to pray for miraculous things because we think that sometimes the Spirit is dead, although we would never say that out loud. That's how we operate in our lives. But then you also can go to the other side where you become so sign-oriented, so fixed on the, the healings that you start believing that those are the things that are amazing. And you see this. We see this not a new battle. You see this here in Luke. The 72 are sent out and said, go, do this. And so they go out and they're healing and they're doing all kinds of things. And they're coming back like, Jesus, even the demons run from us in your name. This is insane. And Jesus is like, okay, that's great. That's awesome. And then he goes, nevertheless, but do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. Don't rejoice in that. That's pointless. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice in your salvation. That's what we should be rejoicing in. See, this is the thing that's interesting about every miracle or, or thing we're praying for, any big thing that we're looking for. Every time we're looking for a miracle, I think sometimes we forget the greatest miracle, which is a lifeless, dead, selfish, ignorant, foolish man like myself can be deemed holy and blameless and righteous before God. I don't need any other miracle than that. The fact that he can clothe me in his righteousness and I can stand, like Hebrews tells us, beyond the veil in the presence of God, anchored, not by my own doing, not in any fear of being lost or, or, or forsaken, I can stand there in the middle of his holiness and stand there and put my head up because I am not there by any merit of my own is the biggest and most profound miracle in my life. And how dare I or any one of us forget that? He's already displayed the greatest miracle. See, the problem is many of us thought we were just pretty good. And so salvation came and said, yeah, I did him a favor. He, he brought me because of all the cool things I'm going to do for his kingdom. No, he, that is the greatest miracle that could ever happen. So do you believe it? Do you believe that he can? Do you believe whether or not you ever see him do it? What is it for you? Is it marriage? Is it finances? Is it relationships? 
Is it the doubt that you have in a family member that doesn't know Jesus, believing that they're just too far gone? They'll never come? Do you believe that God can? And do you believe in God whether he does or not? Do you believe that God can? It's one thing to say that you believe. It's another thing to walk that out. Jesus has all kinds of promises like he is our peace and he will never leave us or forsake us and nothing can take us from his grasp or that he upholds you or that he is sanctifying you or that he is, he's going to bring about joy through trials, like all these promises, and we just forget them because we forget to walk them out in faith. Hebrews 11.1 1 says this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. There's a lot in that to define what faith is, and I don't have the time for it. But the definition when we went through Hebrews that we came up with was faith is taking God at his word and confidently acting on it in obedience. Taking God at his word and confidently acting on it in obedience. That's what faith is. And that's what this man did. What did he do? He took Jesus at his word. He took Jesus at his word and took off and started walking in obedience to it. He acted on it. Why? Confident that Jesus had done what he said he'd done. You can't go from a sobbing, hot mess on the ground and get up and put yourself together and just start walking unless you really believe what you're walking to is better than this moment. Do you have faith? If you have faith, cast your burdens on him. If you have faith, remember that he's the peace that surpasses all understandings, a, a truth that we have too easily forgotten in the last year. Faith allows us to live these things out. Do you believe that God is still doing amazing things? Divine, holy, incredible, powerful things. Do you believe that? And do you still believe in him if he chooses to operate in the common grace through counseling, medicine? Do you still believe that God is at work? And if he doesn't do it the way that you expect it, do you still believe in God? Because that's ultimately what faith is. It's saying, this is my desire. I don't have because I don't ask. That's what scriptures say. I'm not talking like you get everything you ask, but scriptures are pretty clear. Align your heart to my ways, and I'll give you the desire of your heart. Well, I want his ways for the desire of my heart. Do you believe that he can do it? The royal official sought a miracle. Jesus placed himself between the request and the healing. This is what's interesting. So that the man had to act in faith and walk home without the thing he wanted. He had to leave without the thing he wanted. He commanded Jesus to walk with him. It wasn't a polite thing. It was a command. You come here. And Jesus says, no, you go. And to leave. The man decided. He had to decide if he would trust Jesus. Do you trust Jesus? Do you trust him in your life right now? Do you trust him in the healing that needs to happen in your relationships? Do you trust him in the brokenness around this world? Do you trust him in the family members that don't know Jesus? Do you trust him? Do you believe that he can do it? And even if it doesn't work the way that you thought it would work, do you believe that he is who he is? When I say, if I say he doesn't do what I want him to do, then I won't believe in him. This is just another way of saying you will only believe in him if he does the signs like they did back then. The thing that's important is, yes, it can be hard, but doubting God because he doesn't do what you want him to do makes God small. Makes God small. Makes you put yourself in a position you know better than him. 
and put your will in front of his. Trust his word. There are many ways that we are going to see God work in signs. And the, the few things I would love for us to take from that before I close here is, one is that every miraculous thing that happens in our lives is for the glory of God, to draw a relationship in us. And then the third one I didn't say earlier is to work for, for the good for those who love him. Now, when I say the good of those who love him, I'm not talking about, oh, good, I'm going to get exactly what I wanted. The good is making us more and more like Jesus and less like ourselves. The good is the sanctification process, the thing that he promised to do, that he would complete what he began in us as the author of our faith. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for... Thank you for faith. I didn't earn it, it's a gift. Thank you for um, showing me, saving, saving me. Thank you for saving me. I have no need of any other miracle, so forgive me for, for believing that you owe me something else when I didn't even deserve what you gave me. May we be like the, the, the father, the official here, where we hear your word and we just walk in obedience to it. Would we be like the father in, in the fact that we would walk so obediently that, that it would change the lives of those around us? Father, you are an incredibly good God, and you draw us to you. And so I thank you for that. But in doing so, God, I pray that we would be a people that don't hold on to some foolish game in our hearts of questioning whether or not we can or can't believe you based on what you do or don't do, but instead would just surrender our lives completely to you with the joy of walking out our lives with you. God, we thank you for the way that you are glorifying yourself through our lives, and we pray that more of that would come. I pray that we would be a people that are not afraid to ask of bold things, big things, divine things, miraculous things, because we know that God is alive and he is doing it and you are here and you can make it happen. But God, I also be a, pray that we'd be a people that aren't putting some contingency on those bold asks, but instead just surrender to your will. However you wish it to be, that your will be done on, here, on earth as it is in heaven. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope it was a blessing to you. Please visit revolution22.org to find out more information about our church. We remind you to continue to value community. We pray that God's word has drawn you closer to him and that you may continue to love God.